Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to be together with your people. Lord, you are an awesome God, a sovereign God. We thank you that you've saved us, that you've called us, that you've opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And as we are here as a collective body, Lord, over the next few days, focusing on missions, we pray that we will catch a passion and a glimpse of your heart for reaching the lost. I pray even this morning with the teaching that you will open our eyes, that we'll be able to see truths and be encouraged and be convicted and challenged. And I pray, Lord, that we would be effective witnesses for your kingdom. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In light of the fact that it is a missions conference emphasis, I am going to be altering my teaching. I'm not going to be teaching in Hebrews this morning. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. As many of you know... My last week has been a little bit out of kilter. My mom had a little bit of a health episode. Praise the Lord that she's here with us this morning. She's doing much better. I thank you for those who have prayed. But as I was thinking about preparing, my focus this week has been on Acts because I'm teaching tomorrow night. I'm preaching tomorrow night in the service, and my text is going to be from Acts. And so I've been thinking a lot and and focusing on the book of Acts, and so I'm actually going back to a message that I did many years ago on Acts because it seemed appropriate since my mind was already there and my focus was already there that we for a missions conference could talk about evangelism. One of the purposes of the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. Part of the way we go is we proclaim. And so evangelism is a critical part of our obedience of God's philosophy of missions of his focus on missions and as I have pondered in the past the issue of evangelism I realize it's an area where all of us could do more I've heard it said by other people smarter than me but I think they're right I've been a believer over 20 years now if you want to make people feel bad talk to them about prayer or evangelism because we don't do enough of either every Christian knows we fall short in those areas and yet it is something we are compelled and required by God to do. We are his witnesses. And as I pondered, thinking through some time in the past about evangelism, my mind was drawn to the example of the Apostle Peter. And so we're going to be looking this morning at a section of Acts chapter 10, which had a profound impact on the direction of the church. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. And I'm going to not be able to go into as much depth because of our limited time, but I'm going to read through this entire section because I'm going to talk more of a dialogue flow at times and won't be dealing in the precise phrases that I might if I was teaching this over a longer period of time. But let me set a backdrop for what is occurring in Acts chapter 10. Up to this point in Acts chapter 10, the church was a Jewish enterprise. The first disciples, the first apostles were Jewish. The first people called into the church were Jewish. And at the day of Pentecost, all the people getting saved were Jewish people who were coming to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah from the Old Testament. He was the one that God had promised to the nation of Israel. 
And up to Acts chapter 10, the church was composed of Jewish people. In fact, it was so composed of Jewish people that there was a mindset going on that we'll see a little bit later that said, that just assumed that the church would always be Jewish. That the people who were going to believe in the Messiah was, were going to be Jewish. Now, that's not a mindset that should have been in existence because going all the way back to the time of Abraham, God promised that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There are many promises in the Old Testament where there would be a light to the Gentiles, but at the time where we get to Acts chapter 10, that wasn't clear to everyone. In fact, in the preceding part of Acts chapter 10, God gave Peter a vision because God was about to save a man named Cornelius. Cornelius had a knowledge of God. He was a God-fearing man, so to speak. Said he was a devout man, Acts chapter 10, verse 2, one who feared God with all his household. But Peter was not Someone who normally would have interacted with Cornelius. And so God came to Peter in a vision, a dream, and made it clear, you're going to go with some people who are going to come and get you, and you're going to go talk to Cornelius. Peter sort of resisted in his dream state or his vision. He kind of dialogued, and he wasn't sure what was going on, but God made it clear things were going to be different. And so when Peter was returned to his faculties by God, and the people came and said, come with us. Peter didn't hesitate. He went. Verse 29, after Peter recounted to them the the dream, he said, that is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So Peter comes and he tells them, look, I came. I I was going to come. God told me I was coming. The end of verse 29. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Now, Cornelius makes it clear himself, he had had an encounter, perhaps an angelic visitation, telling him that God had heard his prayers. Verse 33, so I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That is an evangelical softball. We're here. We want to hear from you. Now, everything I'm saying to you this morning about evangelism doesn't assume you're going to have necessarily that same type of scenario. But the principles that Peter applied and what he responded in that question can assist us when it comes to evangelism. So just follow along with me. I'm going to read this long section, and then we'll go through it in a little bit more detail. But verse 34 says this. Opening his mouth, Peter said... I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, 
but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Again, this is a profound occurrence in the life of the church. But what Peter said here is a model, is a pattern we could follow. Because the things that Peter communicated in response to this invitation are things that we can communicate if God opens a door for us to evangelize someone. So in sort of synthesizing this down, I just broke it into three principles of effective evangelism. It's very simple. It's not a complicated scenario, but it's something good that we can tangibly think upon as we reflect on what do we do when God opens a door for us. Now, the first principle might seem a little bit odd, and sometimes I choose recognize my my uh, outlines aren't inspired. Those are just communication devices, tools to try and organize things. But my first point is along those lines, I'm just trying to get your attention. It's this. The first principle of effective, for effective evangelism is to evangelize the right people. Evangelize the right people. Starts out under opening his mouth. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That was a revolutionary statement. Sounds normal to us. Doesn't sound any way controversial. This is actually, as I already alluded to, a fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God has always had a plan for non-Jewish people, for Gentiles as well as Jewish people. But this concept, as I already alluded to, was largely absent from the thinking of a normal Jewish person living at that time. So what God was teaching Peter through that vision where three times something was let down and it was Peter taking eat, it was a vision of unclean things. Gentiles were unclean things to Jewish people. And what Peter is saying is, I now understand something. God will save Gentiles. God is not a respecter of person. God doesn't show partiality. There's no category or class of people that God says, well, I don't want to save them. Well, they're not of the right ethnicity. They're not from the right country. They're not the right race. The salvation of God, according to this text, according to all of Scripture, is available to all men who have a heart prepared by God to receive the message, no matter where they're come, what color they are, their background, or anything else. Now, he alludes to something that might seem a little odd. He says, God, you know, God doesn't show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That really is talking about one simple thing, repent and believe. It's talking about a hard attitude of submission to the sovereign God of the universe. He's not saying that somebody could work their way there. He understands that's not it. 
what God requires is that people repent and believe in his son. Had somebody one time talk to me and, and they said something that was unusual. They said, well, Jesus only ever gave a command to be born again. I kind of scratched my head. I said, well, Matthew 4, 17. First thing Jesus said was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is a part of the whole process of faith. Jesus made it clear you cannot come to the Father but through him and you can only come to him through belief, through faith. I always love the response of the jailer when Paul and Silas were there and he realized something was going on. He said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16.31 They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. He's not saying everybody would be saved apart from faith. He's saying if you believe and if your household believes, you can come to faith. That's what we're about to see exactly happening to Cornelius with his household. So from Peter's model, when I say we evangelize the right people... What I'm trying to do is to disabuse any of us of the notion that there's some people that we aren't called to evangelize. Well, that person's Hispanic. I've got to go find a Hispanic person to evangelize them. Well, that person is African-American. I've got to go find a black person to minister to them. Well, that person is from another country. I've got to go find... No, if God brings them in our path, God doesn't show partiality. We can't show partiality. I will never understand what life was like 100 years ago because I didn't live 100 years ago or 200 years ago because I didn't live 200 years ago. But it's hard to fathom that there was a time even in America where the gospel would be withheld from people because they were somehow seen as not deserving. That's never been the testimony of Scripture. If God brings someone across your path, the point is not to go see who looks like them that I can go find. No, you minister to them. God brought them across your path. I remember hearing, um, I think it was John MacArthur saying at different times, people would come to him and say, hey, I've got somebody that needs to be evangelized. And he would say, okay, go do it. You don't need to go find somebody else. You need to take the message to them. If God opens that door just like he did with Peter and Cornelius, even if it's somebody that you normally wouldn't interact with, or for whatever reason you're not comfortable, God's no respecter of persons you can't be either. The right person to evangelize is anybody that God brings across your path. God's not going to give us angelic visions like he did Peter and Cornelius. But we understand on a day-to-day basis, we encounter people all over the place. God sovereignly orchestrates our steps such that before we know it, we're interacting with people that we might have never met before. Those are the people to evangelize. But beyond just being willing to evangelize whoever is there, we also have to be willing to go wherever God calls us to go. The right people are any people that God brings across our path, but it also is any door that might be open. We've got to go to where the people are. It's interesting because Peter, after he came back, you would think just we give testimonies after a mission trip. Peter came back and he wasn't being patted on the back and said, what a great thing, the Lord saved a lot of people. He was criticized. 
Flip over to Acts chapter 11. It should be right there. Peter wasn't supposed to go where he went. Acts 11, verses 1 to 3. This is the response of people in the church. These are saved people. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That, that, that is missing the point colossally. Instead of rejoicing that people were saved, he's like, wait a minute, you weren't supposed to be there. You really shouldn't be in that location. Sometimes when God opens doors, we might have to go to places that are a little uncomfortable for us. I'm not saying that everyone should go and look around and say, what's the worst place I could possibly go? I must go there. But at times, God sovereignly puts us in circumstances where we can walk through a door or we can turn away. If God allows you the opportunity to meet people, even if it's an uncomfortable setting, be willing to go just like Peter was. It may be that you have an opportunity to go into a jail or into a hospital in a bad part of a hospital or it could be a homeless shelter or it could be anything else if God opens a door don't turn away be willing to go wherever God leads sometimes the right people for us to evangelize don't show up and knock on our door and say hey I'm looking for Jesus sometimes God opens a door and we have to walk through it we have to go so my first point about a Effective evangelism was focusing on who our target is, which is anyone on the earth that God brings across our path. That's it. But the second thing I want us to see is how Peter framed the content, and I'll just phrase it this way, evangelize at the right level. Evangelize at the right level. Peter was preaching to Gentiles, and it's clear from the text that I already mentioned to you Cornelius knew about the one true God. Presumably he may have had exposure to the scriptures. But he was a devout man. He feared God. He was Italian. In all likelihood he was part of the Italian cohort. Not Jewish. But Peter had this opportunity and he chose his words carefully. And Peter starts by mentioning the source of truth, which is Scripture, the words which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Obviously, everything about the gospel starts with Jesus Christ. It starts with the word that's been delivered to us. For Christians today, it is strictly the word of God. It is the Bible. But I like what Peter did next. It's an interesting dynamic because he really broke it into two parts. First, he talked about things that these individuals already knew. Look at verse 37. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed, implied in the Greek text, but it's Correctly translated, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and believing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter started on a level of appealing to knowledge that he knew they already had. 
He didn't start out with some esoteric historical background. He knew his audience. He knew the type of knowledge that a common person of his day who would have been in these circumstances might have known. And there was a lot known about Jesus, not just amongst those who believed. Jesus attracted large crowds. Countless people had seen what he had done. And Peter knew that Cornelius knew some of these things. He's appealing to their personal knowledge. You know these things. You know these things. I'm just telling you what you already know. That might be harder in some cultures that have absolutely no exposure to anything. In those cultures, you might have to appeal to a more basic revelation about the wonders of creation, of a Romans 1 circumstance, the types of things that should declare that there is a creator. But for us in America, this is a pretty good model because most Americans have heard something about Jesus. Most Americans have heard something about Christianity. Now, perhaps what they've heard is tainted, but it's possible to appeal to people based on what they know. You know that God had a son, don't you, Jesus Christ? And you know that. You know that the Bible records the account of Jesus. You can appeal to people's knowledge based on where they're from. If they're unbelievers, but who have been in churches, it makes your task perhaps even easier But you can look for common ground, for common truth, and you can appeal to people based on what they already know. But Peter, he did a great thing. He appealed to what they knew, but then he told them what they didn't know, which is always important for us as well. Look at verse 39. He switches from you know, you know, you know, to we. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Peter needed to fill in the gaps of their witness. He needed to make sure that they understood that Jesus wasn't just a guy who came and lived. He was the God-man who died who was crucified. And Peter wasn't just relaying history in a generic sense. I alluded to this a few weeks ago, but I was somewhat unusual. I've always enjoyed history. I've always enjoyed reading about history. I've enjoyed watching documentaries. Even as a kid, I was playing every sport I was always around, but I can remember stopping at the library and reading history books. It just fascinated me. But if you recall your days in school, there were times when people could relate history and pretty soon you fall asleep because you're just tired. They had no passion about it. They didn't care. I'm thinking of my teacher in 11th grade. He sat and he would just read in a monotone voice and you'd look around the room. There were about 12 or 13. I promise you one day 12 out of the 13 were asleep. I was the only one awake. And he didn't care. Here's the point. Jesus Christ shouldn't cause us to be reciting a card out of our pocket. Hold on a second. I got this. Jesus did the... We're eyewitnesses to what he did to us. We know what kind of sinners we were. 
We know the wrong thinking we had. We know the issues of our hearts. Were we walking around on the earth 2,000 years ago? Of course not. But if you don't have an eyewitness testimony of what Jesus Christ did in your life, then you are not saved. Again, I, I just the illustration that pops in my mind, John MacArthur, again, something I heard him say when I was in seminary, heard him say more than once, you know, people always want to know how to evangelize. He used to say this, find somebody that knows less than you and tell them what you know. If you're saved, you got something to say. You can tell them what happened to you. You can tell them what God's delivered you from. If your presentation in the gospel is like my 11th grade history teacher where you just drone on and on, there's something wrong. You ought to be as passionate as Peter, even though we didn't see physically what Peter saw. You ought to have a zeal to tell people about what you experienced. That's what Peter was doing. Peter saw the empty tomb. He saw Jesus dying. He saw the abuse and the mistreatment that was heaped upon Jesus before he died. I always think it's fascinating. He didn't just see him die. He saw him in the empty tomb. He saw Jesus rose from the dead. He got to eat a meal with Jesus after Jesus was raised from the dead. I was eating fish for dinner last night and just my mind has been around these things. I was thinking about the fact that Jesus had fish. I don't know if there will be fish in heaven. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he ate a meal with Peter and the others. That's a compelling testimony. He didn't see a ghost. It wasn't an apparition. It was a physical bodily resurrection. And Peter could give compelling eyewitness testimony of what he had seen. We have the ability to share with people the truth about Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture, and we must do so. For a lot of people that God brings across your path, that's all you'll be doing is saying, hey, you know what's in the Bible. Let me go over it again. You already know what's in the Scriptures. You've got a copy of them. You've got 12 copies around your house. Let's pull one out. Now, let me remind you of what you already know. It's right here. But then let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what this gospel does. Let me tell you what this gospel did. You have a testimony. You know the way of salvation. You've experienced it. You've walked that path. You can share that with others. You have to share what is true about Jesus Sadly, some people would sort of take the principles of what I'm just saying and they would just, the, the gospel would become all about me. That's not what I'm saying. I've got a better job. I've got a better house. I've got a better life. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that you've got forgiveness from sins, that you've been delivered from bondage to sinful behavior. But that deliverance and that bondage didn't come because you did anything. It came because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for sinners. We find people that God brings across our path, that's what we tell them. 
We tell them what they know, but we also fill in the gaps what they don't know. Had breakfast with a, a brother from Lakeside yesterday. I love hearing people's testimonies. It always encourages me. How did God save you? What was your circumstance? How did God find you? Where were you when God saved you? If you can't share something like that, if you don't have that kind of testimony, you have to evaluate what do you experience about the gospel? What do you know? Now, it is important. If you're going to evangelize at people's level, you have to know who they are. That's why one-size-fits-all evangelism isn't appropriate. Jesus took the time to get to know people. He talked to them. He listened to their issues. We need to be students of people. I'm guilty very much of being so task-focused that I can put on blinders and be oblivious to people. I shudder to think the number of people that God brought across my path and I didn't even see them because I was so focused on getting something done. If you have any tendencies like that, slow down. Look at the world around you through God's eyes, understanding that you're his witness. I want to encourage you. Your testimony doesn't have to be dramatic. You didn't have to be in prison for murder to have a testimony of Jesus, although I went to seminary with somebody like that, who God delivered. You don't have to have a testimony that you were in prison for drug use and all kinds of issues like that, although I went to seminary with somebody like that too. Those are dramatic, and we praise the Lord for those testimonies. But sometimes it's just, you know what? I was raised with godly parents who told me at an early age about Jesus Christ. And I praise the Lord that I came to faith. You don't have to have a spectacular testimony. You have to have a true testimony, and you share that. That's what God's given you. That's what you share with other people. So you want to evangelize with the right people, whoever God brings across your path. You want to evangelize at the right level. Try and talk to them at a level they can understand. You probably wouldn't talk to a 35-year-old college-educated, master's degree-holding person the same way you would talk to your second grader. Unless your second grader is really, really smart. Don't be so enamored with, i got to get this right, that you forget who you're talking to. Just be faithful. And finally, I, I want to emphasize this. I've already been talking about it, of evangelizing at the right level, but we want to make sure, and the third point is this, you've got to evangelize with the right message. I sort of got ahead of myself and, and introduced that without saying it. We have to evangelize with the right message. Peter's already relaying all of these things that Jesus did and that God had done through Jesus Christ. Verse 42. This was the call of Peter's heart. And he, Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What Peter did would not be popular today. Peter told them there is a judgment coming. If you want to offend Americans, tell them that they're going to stand before a holy God and give an account. I get 
tired of hearing the number of times people say, well, who are you to judge? Well, I'm not the judge, but you're going to stand before him. Who am I to judge? I can tell you what God's word says. You can evaluate your own behavior by God's word because one day you're going to stand before him and give an account. Peter did not shrink from telling him. In fact, he was compelled by God to testify not just that Jesus was a wonderful Savior, but he is a righteous judge. That's why a gospel message apart from the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God is not a gospel message. You've got to warn people about what's coming, even when they don't want to hear it. I've had people that I've shared with before, a close friend, I'm thinking of one in particular, who really was trying to press me to the wall, and he said, you think I'm going to hell, don't you? You want to just separate your evangelism. You start talking about hell. That's really when people get antsy. If you're nervous about evangelizing, make yourself really nervous. Tell them there's a righteous judge. Now, what I told my friend is what I think is irrelevant. What God's word says, though, is that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. That's God's testimony about your life. It's not me. What does it matter what I think? I'm not the judge. But there is one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. We need to warn people about that. The gospel is a message of love and grace and mercy. But it's also a warning about a coming judgment. Over and over the scriptures make clear Jesus Christ is the judge. 2 Timothy 4.1 says that. In fact, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You know, one of the great things that this started with this verse Peter says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. God will bring to himself people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And we praise the Lord that God offers such an expanse of salvation. But God is no respecter of persons when it comes to judgment either. We live in a world where I... This is barely hyperbole where I think some people think they're going to heaven because they're Americans. They really do. Their theology has gotten so wrapped up in the flag. And I love America. I love our country. I am a patriotic citizen. But patriotism doesn't make you right with a holy God. You can't get into heaven because you can sing the Star Spangled Banner. God's going to judge Americans too. It's not just the heathen over there. He'll judge here. And if you look around us, you understand there's a lot of judgment being heaped up in our country right now. We have to tell people that. Do we tell them about grace? Yes. Uh, Tragically, when this gets out of balance, I've been around Christians who almost seem happy that certain people are going to hell. That's a distorted, wicked heart. 
I don't fully understand the depths of how it all works out. But the scripture says God doesn't take delight in the punishment of the wicked. You know, if we, if we get our heart hardened, when we see people that make us so mad, we can say, well, I hope they get what's coming to them. Repent when you say that. Because quite often it's not a righteous, holy anger. It's just a fleshly reaction to our frustrations with the world around us. Judgment is coming. That's the reason Jesus started with repent. Now, here's the beautiful part though. We're not prophets of gloom and doom. Even as we talk about judgment, verse 43, we can tell them of salvation. That's the gospel message. That's the other half of it. It's not just judgment. It's mercy. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. That is the great hope of all hopes. That if someone will place their faith in Jesus Christ, they can have peace with God. They can have forgiveness of their sins. That's summarizing John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There are times when we can be tempted to tell people, you know, if you come to Christ, you'll, you'll feel better, you'll be happier, you'll be all these things. The reality is what we can tell them is that if they come to Christ, their sins are forgiven. If you didn't hear Pastor Steve preaching through Psalm 32, go back and listen to that. In fact, give that to people. Because you can show them a blessedness, a happiness that transcends their circumstances because you can come to faith and still be poor. You can come to faith and still have cancer. You can come to faith and your spouse can still leave you. That's the reason that a message of someone like a Joel Osteen is so offensive because it sells a false hope. It says that really what God's about is your comfort. It's a health and wealth and a prosperity gospel. Does God care about you? Of course he does. But you never know as to whether God's going to say to you, like he said to the Apostle Paul, My strength is sufficient for you. You're going to stay in your circumstance. I understand, Paul, you asked me three times to take away this thorn in the flesh, but I have a sovereign purpose for allowing you to stay in your circumstances. We can't promise people that their circumstances of life will change because we are not sovereign. But we can promise them that if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven. That God will remove those sins as far as the east is from the west. That they can have peace with a holy God. We are sent ones of God. We only have his message. Do we have a personal experience of it? Of course we do. But we can't twist the gospel. There's only one message of salvation. We live in a society where that's increasingly hard to maintain because people claiming to be Christian leaders are preaching a different gospel. It's 
why a so-called pastor writes a book that's basically saying hell doesn't exist. Well, that's fascinating. Because Peter's talking about judgment. Which, of course, there is no judge if hell doesn't exist. A person just wrote a book I read a review about saying the Bible, don't worry about whether the Bible's real or not. That doesn't matter. Those aren't outside the church. Those are people from within the confines. Be a discerning reader. Don't just take people's word for it when they say they're a Christian pastor or a leader and they write a book. Be a Berean. Go to the scriptures to see if these things are so. But understand, when God opens a door for us, when God allows us to interact with someone, we give them God's message. It's a message of judgment, of warning, but it's also a message of forgiveness and hope. So let me just encourage you. I'd love it if you would come back tonight to hear Jim Jensen's message on missions. In fact, I would encourage you strongly to do it. I would encourage you to be back tomorrow night. I'm going to be talking about Acts chapter 1, the philosophy of missions that I think we can learn from there. Come back Tuesday. Jason's going to be talking about how you can be involved in the task of missions. But I'm going to explain, I think, from Scripture tomorrow that it would be wrong to think of missions as something that happens some other place. Because missions happens here. And it involves, in part, you being a witness which is why Peter's example, I think, can be instructive for us. So I pray that as God gives you opportunities, you'll be looking to step through in faith like Peter did and share truth with the right people at the right level, at the right message. Join me in a closing word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I understand that each of us is created uniquely by you. Lord, I know in my own life it's not hard for me to stand and talk to people. I know for other people that's the most terrifying thing they could ever be asked to do. But Lord, I do know that when you bring people across my path, I have flinched before and I know I'm always tempted to flinch again. Lord, it is uncomfortable for us to share our faith at times because we're afraid that people will think badly of us, that people will be wanting to avoid us. There's countless different reasons why our flesh conspires against us to keep us from being your witnesses. But Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful. I pray that we would lead lives that point to Christ, that people would see our lives and would notice something's different. But Lord, I also pray that we would remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Our verbal proclamation of the gospel is part and parcel of our witness to the world and I pray that you would embolden us to share the truth where you give us opportunities. Lord, you haven't called all of us to go overseas. You haven't called all of us to be in full-time ministry. You haven't called all of us to be teachers. But Lord, you have called every one of us to be your witnesses. 
I pray that we would be faithful to be witnesses where you give us opportunity and that we would witness in a way that you might be able to use your word by the power of your spirit to change sinful hearts so that more people will be brought into your kingdom for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.